Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, since November of last year, this committee has tried to get witnesses from the prior administration to testify about a wide range of issues currently challenging the United States-Russian relationship. While the Obama administration did make officials available for classified briefings, they would not allow anyone to speak publicly about the strategic issues driving this relationship. By the way, uh, that's not a criticism, it's an observation, and I know they wanted to get uh, everybody on the same page relative to things that led up to the election. But the point is, it's taken us a while to actually have a Russia hearing, and we're glad to be able to do that today. At the same time, the, the Trump administration continues the process of nominating its own people and establishing its own priorities. Um, so not a lot of people in the Trump administration to testify today either. <laughs> Um, this committee turns to the expertise of previous government servants with deep knowledge of Russia. And uh, I'm going to welcome you appropriately in a moment, but I just want to say again, thank you so much uh, for being here today. Specifically, we have asked them here to discuss the overall state of our bilateral relationship and the elements of a successful strategy to defend American interests. Russia possesses not only the second most powerful military in the world behind the United States in everything except nuclear weapons, but also a seat at the United Nations Security Council, where their veto can complicate much of what we try to do in the world. I'll just uh, amplify and say that uh, the United States, the UN Security Council was set up to create stability around the world, and those permanent members were put there because they were seen as a stabilizing force. Now Russia uh, is a member of this, uh, obviously, continued to be, and has very much become a destabilizing force and has kept us from doing things around the world in unison uh, that should be done. So today we must discuss the broad spectrum of issues that our country has with the Russian Federation and its behavior in recent years. As we've heard multiple times in this room, Russia violated the Budapest Memorandum when it invaded Ukraine where it continues to occupy stolen land and enable combat operations that kill innocent civilians. Uh, just a, another report out recently regarding what's happening in eastern Ukraine, uh, the depravity that people are, are dealing with there, again, solely uh, by the Russians uh, supporting the rebels there. I appreciated the comments last week of our new ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who strongly condemned Russia's role in the recent escalation of violence in eastern Ukraine and insisted U.S. sanctions over Crimea would remain in place. And I would note the communications uh, staff in the White House verified that that was the administration's position. As the New York Times reported in October of last year, Russia has also developed ground launch cruise missiles, Glickums as we call them, that violate the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, giving them a serious military advantage at the expense of international law. And at some point you wonder um, what the purpose is of a treaty that we know, that we know Russia uh, has violated and in essence uh, in some ways is abrogating. And as we have seen on our own televisions and smartphones, Russia has joined the Syrian civil war on the side of the Assad regime, participating in the destruction of hospitals and schools and targeting civilians. 
the resulting instability contributed to the migration crisis and terror threat that has gripped Europe. I know General Breedlove has been there seven times since his retirement uh, in May. Not much of a retirement, I might add, but I know you'll be able to shed light on that. These are only a few examples of ways in which Russian actions directly conflict with American interests. The entire list is longer, including the deployment of Russian forces into Georgia and Moldova, unprecedented efforts to interfere in our elections, and the increasingly hostile approach that the Russian government has taken to silence opposition politicians, a free and independent press, and civil society in general. The sudden hospitalization of pro-democracy advocate Vladimir Karamursa, who testified here not long ago, uh, who continues to fight for his life, stands as a stark reminder of the risks borne by Russians when they speak out against an increasingly autocratic regime. Similarly, the Russian court's treatment of Alexei Navalny begs the questions about the democratic process under Putin. How we deal with Russia is going to be one of the major projects for Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, and it's something for which he is ideally suited given his deep relationships and understanding of the geostrategic issues at play. Secretary Tillerson knows the dangers posed by Russia and the importance of restoring a credible U.S. deterrent so Moscow can no, no longer exploit what it perceives as American weakness. With that, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses about how to address these problems in a way that moves our approach to Russia in the right direction. Again, thank you, and I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member and my friend, Ben Card. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I welcome both of our witnesses today. We are indeed very fortunate to have you participate in this discussion. We have two people who are very knowledgeable on U.S.-Russian relations. And Mr. Chairman, I want to start by uh, thanking you. There is no person in the United States Senate that is more protective of the role of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee than our chairman, Chairman Corker. And I really very much appreciate that. It's one of the reasons why I think people want to serve on this committee, because they recognize that our chairman will preserve the, the importance of this committee. Uh, in uh, the Senate and in this country. And uh, the chairman is absolutely correct. After the attack on our country by Russia and our election system, there was a strong desire to hold hearings. Senator Shaheen was one of the leaders to suggest that there needs to be a, a greater uh, a congressional involvement and awareness of what Russia was trying to do to the United States. We were caught in transition. We had an administration that was leaving, an administration that was starting up, and it was not possible to hold meaningful uh, meetings of our committee uh, in, in an effort to, to uh, carry out our responsibility. So I very much appreciate this hearing as we start our discussion on how the United States needs to uh, deal with Russia. And from the point of view of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, what can we do in regards to the use of our diplomacy, to the use of we're the committee that authorizes force? We have a lot at stake as to how we can protect our country against the actions that Russia has taken and how we can also try to change the equation. How can we change the equation from Russia's point of view uh, as they show aggression? It's not just the attack on our country. We know that on, on, on the free election. But we are also worried what they may do in the future, not only in the United States, but in Western Europe. It's also what they continue to do in Ukraine. 
they, the chairman pointed out, they violated the Budapest Memorandum, the Minsk Agreements, and they have invaded uh, Ukraine. They occupy Crimea today, and they're still interfering in the eastern part of Ukraine. And then we see what they're doing in Syria. Uh, we just got a report from Amnesty International about 13,000 people who were executed in a prison north of Damascus. These are war crimes, war crimes. And they are uh, assisted and carried out because of the support of Russia to the Assad regime in Syria. All those issues beg for us to, to be engaged as to how we can change Russia's calculations, because we know where there's a void, they're going to fill it in a way that's contrary to the interests of our national security. So we need to remain strong. Mr. Chairman, I very much agree that this committee needs to be engaged. I have, as you know, filed for an independent commission like the 9-11 Commission. I think that should be done also because that's an independent, full-time commission that can look at what happened to our country and help us prepare. But I strongly support the efforts that we're doing here. I want to say just one word um, that concerned me uh, with, with President Trump trying to drive a moral equivalency between the murderous conduct by Mr. Putin and activities in our own country. There is no equivalency whatsoever, and I think that did a disservice to the servicemen and women who have really defended our country and, a, and our democratic values, and, and I, I, I needed to say something. I was pleased to see Ambassador Haley's comments, and supported by the uh, White House, that the sanctions in Russia will remain. Uh, they need to remain, in my view, until Russia complies with the Helsinki uh, commitments and, and, and withdraws from Crimea and interference with Ukraine. Uh, and they live up to all the terms in the Minsk agreements. So I was pleased to see that. Yesterday, Senator Graham and I, along with other members, filed the Russian Sanction Review Act. Uh, it is patterned after the bill, Mr. Chairman, that you and I and Senator Menendez and others, uh, Senator Kane and others, worked on to have a review of the Iran nuclear agreement. And it's patterned very similar to that, so that before the president would consider uh, changing the sanction regime in Russia, he would give Congress an opportunity and the American people to understand the policy uh, before that could go into effect. It's bipartisan, and that's the way I think we should operate. I've also filed with Senator McCain and joined by members of this committee, Senator Rubio, Portman, Gardner, Menendez, Shaheen, and Murphy, a bill that would strengthen our ability to use sanctions against Russia because of these, these conducts. I think all of that's important. Washington needs to send a signal of resolve, otherwise Mo Moscow will continue to interfere in our democratic process and those of our allies. It will continue to violate the sovereignty of its neighbors. It will push until it stops. Mr. Chairman, I want to close with a quote from Kara Mur Mursa. Uh, the person who we've talked about in recent days, uh, he's a courageous democratic activist in Russia who was poisoned in 2015. Uh, he uh, asserts that the government attacked him uh, for his activism. Last week we received word that he once again was in a coma uh, as a result, we believe, of, uh, of another effort to poison him. Uh, I, I just want to say one word of encouragement. We've heard today that he is coming out of that coma. That's, that's, that's good news, but he's still very, very seriously ill. This is what he said, and he testified before our committee. Sat where the, our two witnesses are sitting today. That he sat there on J June the 7th of last year. And this is his quote. Our friends in the West often ask how they can be helpful to the cause of human rights and democracy in Russia. And the answer is very simple. Please stay true to your values. We're not asking for your support. It is our task to fight democracy and rule of law in our country. 
only thing we ask from Western leaders is that they stop supporting Mr. Putin by treating him as a respectable and worthy partner and by allowing Mr. Putin's cronies to use Western countries as havens for their looted wealth. I pray that Mr. Karamursa will recover. I pray that he will continue to be uh, allowed to, to, to uh, participate in the Russian society. I pray that the Russian people will have a government that is, re that is reflective of the greatness of, of them as individuals. And I think we can play a role uh, in this committee. I look forward to our hearing. Well, thank you for those comments. And uh, I just want to reiterate uh, something you said. I see no moral equivalence none between ourselves and uh, the actions that Russia has taken. And I agree with you, those comments uh, to me do not reflect, certainly most members of the United States Senate, I would say all, but I think at least most, and I uh, couldn't agree more. Secondly, I thank you for efforts legislatively. I've talked uh, a little bit with General Breedlove prior to coming in, and uh, having spent some time with Tillerson, understanding the route he's planning to take to ratchet back what Russia's doing. I want to spend a little time making sure that what we do to strengthen his hand is appropriate. And uh, I, think, uh, I think you're going to see a very different uh, uh, type of activity towards Russia personally than we've seen. This is not to be pejorative, but let's say one more time, I mean, Russia and Putin took advantage of what they saw to be weakness. And, uh, and I think what we all want to do is show strength, but we want to do so uh, in conjunction with activities that uh, we think can, can have a degree of flexibility but move ahead together in a much stronger way. So again, thank you for that. With that, our first witness is retired General Philip N. Breedlove, distinguished professor at the Sam Nunn School at the Georgia Institute of Technology and board director at the Atlantic Council. General Breedlove previously served as former NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe and former Commander of U.S. European Command. We've all spent a lot of time with him uh, in Europe and here, and we thank him for his incredible service to our nation, which is continuing as we speak. Our second witness today is Ms. Julianne Smith, who's been before us in the past, a senior fellow and director at the Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for New American Security. Uh, we thank you again for being with us. Uh, I think both of you know you can summarize your comments, which would be appreciated. In about five minutes, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. Again, thank you for being here on this most important day with this hearing. Thank you. And if you just begin, General Breedlove, we'd appreciate it. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, thank you for this invitation to testify before the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. It is really an honor to be here. We are here to discuss an urgent topic, and you have both led in well to it, and that is U.S. policy towards Russia. Not surprisingly, at the start of a new administration, there is much talk about a new effort to reach out to Moscow and to start a dialogue. This was true at the start of George W. Bush's administration and President Obama's. Given the current difficulties in U.S.-Russia relations, this interest makes a good deal of sense to me. Russia is, as you have mentioned, a great power. They have a proud history. They have a, the largest country in terms of territory, and they are a player in influence in Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East. 
Russia possesses the world's second most powerful military, as you pointed out, Mr. Chairman, a nuclear arsenal comparable to ours and conventional forces that are easily the most powerful in Europe. While its economy is stagnant and hit hard by the low prices of oil and natural gas, it's still the 12th largest in dollar terms. We cannot simply dismiss Russia. Uh, I think we would do that at our peril. It makes great sense for our government to have meaningful discussions and meetings with Russia. We have much to discuss with the Kremlin. But first, we would like to make sure that our relationship does not deteriorate further. The most urgent matter concerns Moscow's current, for me, the most urgent matter concerns Moscow's current practice in flying warplanes dangerously close and without their transponders on and to the incursions between our aircraft and their ships. Such incidents risk fatal accidents and even a clash between the U.S. and Russia. We need to reestablish substantive communication between our two militaries in order to avoid such incidents, and when they occur, to move towards deconfliction. In our initial communication and or cooperation, if it is successful, then more senior dialogue might be warranted. Maybe a summit would permit us to see if there is a basis for cooperation on a number of global issues of possible interest to both of us. That should start with a subject that has been at the heart of relations between Washington and Moscow for over half of a century, and that is nuclear disarmament. This area has been dormant since the first Obama administration. Equally important, especially for President Trump, is potential joint action against the Daesh or Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, ISIL. The problem here is that Thus far, Moscow's extensive military operation in Syria has devoted little attention to the extremists. It has instead been directed against the weak moderates who we support, and lately as it works with Ankara against the Kurds. And its indiscriminate bombing against civilian populations have fueled refugee flows, exacerbating the refugee crisis in Europe. Moscow's principal objective in Syria is to shore up the weak yet savage Assad regime. If we backed off active opposition to Assad, a serious concession to Mr. Putin, is Moscow really willing to partner in Syria and beyond? Another area to explore is Iran. Moscow has been an active partner of Iran in Syria. As we saw recently, Iran even provided Russian warplanes a base for a brief period of time. Yet at the same time, it worked with us and others in, in persuading Tehran to sign the agreement on its nuclear program. The Trump administration has indicated that it wants to take a second look and improve the terms of that agreement. Is Moscow willing to partner? Or does it prefer good relations with Tehran at the expense of stability in the Persian Gulf? This is by no means a complete list. Space exploration and counter-narcotics are among the other areas we could possibly cooperate. But all these issues point to the important business we can do when U.S. and Russian interests overlap. We must not, however, be naive. There are a number of critical areas where Moscow is challenging U.S. interests, including our vital interests. As the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, I had a ringside seat for three years of watching Moscow do just that. President Putin has made clear that he wants to upend the post-Cold War order established in Europe. 
He and senior Russian officials have justified aggression in Ukraine by claiming a right to protect ethnic Russians and Russian speakers there. And they have said that this principle applies elsewhere. Their goal is to weaken NATO, the European Union, and the transatlantic relationship. The peace that we established in Europe in 1945 and that we reinforced at the end of the Cold War in 1989 has been the basis of the unprecedented security and prosperity that we have enjoyed for the past 25 years. It put an end to the unbridled great power rivalries that gave us World Wars I and II, the most destructive wars in human history. We have a vital interest in maintaining a strong NATO and a vibrant Europe. Over the past nine years, the Kremlin has committed multiple acts of aggression in Georgia in 2008, in Crimea in early 2014, and since then, an ongoing not-so-covert war in Ukraine's east. It has agreed to two ceasefires, Minsk one and two, and violated each repeatedly. And Moscow has intimated by actions and statements that if it succeeds in Ukraine, there will be future targets. These targets may include our NATO allies, Estonia and Latvia, where ethnic Russians comprise 25% of the population. We have a vital interest in stopping Moscow's revanchist policies before they move to other countries, and especially our NATO allies in the Baltics. While we conduct a dialogue with Moscow, we need to strengthen NATO's presence in the Baltic states and other eastern members of the alliance. The Trump administration should endorse the decisions taken at the Warsaw NATO summit last summer to do just that. It should reaffirm our Article 5 commitment to defend each NATO member under threat, and it should take the lead in enhancing NATO capabilities to deal with hybrid war. To understand, underscore our commitment to the alliance, it would make sense for the president to first meet with his NATO colleagues before seeing President Putin. The administration, which understands the value of negotiating from strength, should adopt a position of forward defense in dealing with the Kremlin challenge to NATO. It should fully support Ukraine against Kremlin aggression. The Obama administration was reluctant to provide Ukraine with the defensive weapons necessary to better defend itself. The new term should relook at that. It is also essential to provide Moscow no free passes in the war on Ukraine. Our and Europe's economic sanctions, which cost the Russian economy in 2015, were imposed as an incentive for Moscow to meet its immense commitments and withdraw from Ukraine's east, and as a deterrence against additional aggression. It would be a sign of weakness to ease those sanctions for anything less than Moscow's full compliance with Minsk. The more trouble the Kremlin has conducting its war in Ukraine, the less likely it is to cause trouble for us with our eastern NATO partners. We must also ramp up substantially our cyber defense to withstand the nasty operations that the Kremlin has been conducting against us and others. We also need to consider how we can respond to future cyber attacks in ways not, maybe not public, that discourage them from continuing. So in closing, sir, a dialogue with Moscow is possible, as is cooperation on certain important issues but we should not be fooled by that prospect to surrender either our principles or our interests. We should enter that conversation with good faith and respect, but also from a position of strength. That is the way to achieve agreements 
that serve our interest and that last. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Ms. Smith. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify this morning on Russia. Let me just start by saying that the U.S.-Russia relationship is fraught with more tension today than at any point since the end of the Cold War. Russia is engaged in a sophisticated and long-term strategy to undermine the rules-based order that we spent 70-some years creating and reforming with our European allies. As the general noted, Russia is doing everything it can to undermine our democratic institutions. It's trying to divide Europe from within. It's trying to divide Europe from the United States. And it's trying to create spheres of influence. Because of these efforts, because of what Russia is trying to do to undermine our interests, I think the role that Congress plays is more important than ever. And so I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Russia is using a variety of tactics and means to achieve its objectives, and I want to cite just a couple this morning as some examples. First, Russia is redrawing Europe's borders, as it did in 2014 by invading Ukraine. Russia, as the general also noted, continually uses its modernized and formidable military forces to intimidate and threaten our European allies. They regularly fly into European airspace with their transponders off and show up in ter their territorial waters. Russia is also weaponizing stolen information that it obtains through hacking, as we saw it do in our elections last fall. And it's interfering in the political processes of our European allies, as it is doing right now with the French elections that will take place in May. Russia spends a significant amount of money on its vast network of propaganda outlets. The Russia Today office in Washington alone has a $400 million budget, and there are now more YouTube subscribers to Russia Today than any other broadcaster, including the BBC, which has a significant global reach. And according to our own intelligence community, Russia is one of the most sophisticated actors in cyberspace. As you all know, it has penetrated the computer systems at the White House, at the State Department, and US critical infrastructure. It is doing that to our allies in Europe as well. So what have we done about this in recent years, particularly in light of what Russia did in Ukraine in 2014? We've done a number of things. We've worked to create new tools with our European allies, We've worked to isolate Russia. We kicked Russia out of the G8, returning that forum to the G7. We have reassured our European allies by putting more posture in Europe and providing them with more resources. We imposed sanctions, and we, of course, have supported Ukraine. But despite all of that, Russia continues with its aggressive behavior in its immediate neighborhood and beyond. And at home, as Senator Cardin noted, it's curtailing uh, the press. It's weakening civil society and suppressing the opposition. We're now at a point where the new administration is weighing its options and looking at how we carry forward with the U.S.-Russia relationship. And as the administration looks at that relationship and determines the way forward, I would make five brief recommendations. First, make any change in U.S. policy conditional on Russian behavior. Put the onus on Russia. Don't give away anything for free. Two, be very wary, as the general noted, of aligning with Russia in Syria. 
They have very little to offer. Three, don't do anything without consulting our European allies for, first. To the extent that we want to engage with the Russians, we should do so in consultation with our closest allies. Four, as Senator Cardin also noted, let's get to the bottom of what Russia did in our election through a bipartisan commission to prevent and deter these types of attempts in the future. And lastly, I would suggest that the administration work with Congress to address the threat of Russia's very aggressive cyber behavior. I don't want to leave you with the impression this morning that I don't support engaging with Russia. I do. And I think there have been many points in our history where we have engaged Russia, and it has served both our interests. We did so during the Cold War, and we've done <coughs> so since the end of the Cold War. But I think we've also learned some very important short-term lessons about the dangers of short-term deals and that Russia tends to overpromise and underdeliver. Therefore, I think we should proceed with caution, ensure that we are doing everything to protect our relationship with our European allies. Thank you. Thank you for that testimony. I, I just would say to folks, we have a Republican witness and a Democratic witness. Um, you pick. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. They're both good. But the fact is that they're both saying the same thing, and generally speaking. We have, from my perspective, uh, an opportunity that we have not had in 10 years on this committee to work in a coordinated fashion with an administration that's coming on to really develop thoughtful, meaningful policies that can be coordinated. I know that's not well-received yet by all. I see an opportunity for us, and uh, I just uh, hope that we'll take advantage of an opportunity for the first time since I've been here in a decade to take full advantage of helping shape policies towards Russia, towards Iran, and towards other places. And again, I point to these witnesses and say <laughs> there sure is a lot of agreement uh, amongst us relative to how to deal with them. With that, I'll reserve the rest of my time and turn to Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, I, I certainly agree with that assessment that this committee can play a major role. And I think we already have seen some uh, impact with uh, Ambassador Haley's comments on the sanctions. So I, I, I really do believe you're, you're absolutely correct. And we need to see how we can weigh in with the administration so we have unity, because that's the, always the best. And where we need to take congressional action, we should uh, make sure we can do that in a nonpartisan way in the best interest of our country. Uh, I, I want to, there's so much to talk about, and, and I'm going to limit myself only to the five minutes I have. So I'm not going to be able to cover everything I would like, and we'll, we'll continue this discussion beyond today. Uh, but we've, we have the European Deterrence Initiative as an effort to show, from a military point of view, we are prepared to stand up to Russia by uh, placing our strength in NATO along the areas that you mentioned that uh, there's a Russian population in NATO countries. Uh, that's, uh, I think, a very a smart strategic move. But I, I want to go to a, a related subject, Ms. Smith, that you talked about, and that is that Russia is using democratic institutions to try to undermine democratic institutions. We saw that with our election process here in the United States. We know that Europe is vulnerable to this with the way they, they use propaganda uh, to try to bring down uh, the uh, free uh, democratic institutions of Europe. 
And we have suggested perhaps a European democracy initiative with our European allies uh, to sure up the democratic institutions against the propaganda and uh, cyber and everything else that Russia is doing to try to, uh, to get false information out and to undermine the democratic rule of law. Can you just comment a little bit about how useful that would be for a coordinated effort among Europe and the United States to protect our democratic institutions? Sure, thank you, Senator. Uh, absolutely. I think such an initiative would be welcomed by our European allies and one that makes perfect sense. Europe has been, frankly, dealing with what we're seeing from Russia in many ways longer than we have. Many of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, but now in Western Europe as well, have been dealing with an array of kind of information shaping policies and tactics by the Russian government to try and alter the, the political dynamics inside these countries. Sometimes their goal is to fuel instability by uh, fanning the flames and concerns of Russian minorities and creating some um, doubts among those populations about how their national governments are responding to their needs. Sometimes they're simply supporting either politically or financially a particular party. Uh, it's been well documented that Russia has actually loaned Marine Le Pen uh, her actual campaign in France money. It's expected that they will do that again in the lead up to the May election in France. And so this is a challenge that many of our European allies are grappling with. Anything that we could do to share lessons with our European allies and develop better tools to both detect what's going on and then figure out what we can do collectively to push back on these efforts and also expose them would be extremely helpful. And, and we saw that in Montenegro parliamentary elections where they try to disrupt it so that Montenegro would not uh, be eligible to join NATO. We see their activities in Georgia today to make it more difficult for Georgia to become a, a NATO partner. We see it over and over again. General, I'm going to ask you about a dilemma we have. Senator Corker and I would both agree that we, the international community did not show enough resolve in support of Ukraine uh, that left a void where Russia was free to interfere not only with taking Crimea but in eastern Ukraine. And this committee looked at providing a much stronger response by the United States, including providing lethal weapons uh, to Ukraine. We were rebuked by the administration. And the main reason, they said, is that Europe, they wanted to be in step with Europe, and Europe was not anxious for the United States to provide that type of assistance to Ukraine. So my question to you is, you, you indicate you want us to work in concert with Europe. And I agree with that. But it seems to me that Europe's a little bit timid at times where the United States could do more, and how do we reconcile that so that we don't give space to Russia for their aggressive activities? So uh, thank you, Senator. And, and if I have 20 seconds, I'd also like to add a remark to your first question. Sure. But uh, to, the, to the latter concern, I think it's important when we deal with Russia that we are consistent, that we either do not reward bad behavior or that we don't let bad behavior go unaddressed. And I was supportive of supplying uh, what were at the time termed uh, defensive lethal weapons. I don't really like that distinction. Any weapon can be used defensively or offensively. But I was in favor of allowing Ukraine to defend itself. I believe that every nation has a right 
to defend itself. And so I do believe that although we do want to act as often as we can in concert with our allies, and many of our allies were actually in favor of some of that, some were not. Um, but I do believe that we, we uh, had an opportunity to give Ukraine a better capability to defend itself in the Donbass. And as I sort of mentioned in my opening remarks, I think that's something that needs to be relooked. Thank you. Thank you. Did you want to say something else about his? I don't want to overuse the senator's time, but I would just say that broadly I would, I would expand the, the, the problem a little bit. Mr. Gerasimov, my uh, general officer counterpart in Russia, describes what he calls war by other means, indirect means. I call it war below the lines. What can we do, we being the Russians, do in a nation below that threshold at which either the nation or the international community reacts? And I believe that Mr. Gerasimov and others see this different in every nation. They can get away with more in one than the other. I think shocking is how far they believe now they can get away with this in our nation, as witnessed in what happened in the, the election. And so your initiative would be a tool to take the field to counter this war between the lines, or below the lines. I do not believe that we in NATO, the European Union, or the West in general, have really come to an understanding of how we're going to react this to this war by indirect means or war below the lines. Cyber, disinformation campaigns, coercion with force, all of it lumped together in this war. We need a broader approach to how we counter it. Thank you. I'm glad we gave you an extra yeah. two minutes. Senator Paul. Thank you for your testimony. Um, with General Relov, with regard to uh, dealing with Russia, do you think that the problems can be discussed region by region, or do they have to be discussed you know, all together? Can Ukraine be discussed somewhat separate from Syria, somewhat separate from cyber incursions, somewhat separate from uh, the Baltics? Senator, thank you. I've testified to this before in front of the, another committee in the Senate, and, and I, I remain committed to my original uh, line of uh, answer, and that is that everything Russia does is connected. Pressure in one nation could be pressure only on that nation. It could be signaling the Baltics. Pressure in uh, Syria could be only about Syria. It could be signaling that their military is capable of doing things in Europe. And so I believe that we need to look at Russia in a very interconnected way. I do not disqualify that we could begin to find sub-areas where we might be able to begin to reestablish a trust relationship, which, by the way, we do not have now. So maybe sub-areas can be addressed for, as I mentioned in my remarks, to begin conversations to reestablish trust. But I do believe that everything Russia does is in the context of a larger attempt to diminish the West and to raise Russia. Do you think if we were looking at the Syria situation, somewhat separate and not necessarily dependent on the rest of the world, um, you mentioned what most people agree with, that uh, the Russians have been more concerned with, you know, supporting Assad than they have with extremists. But that also, I think, 
is related to the fact that the rest of the world has been more concerned with getting rid of Assad. You know, they, they feel as if they want to defend their base there. I don't think they're giving their base up. I think that's not something they're going to give up is that base. To them, they see the base as important and Assad as an important protection of their naval base there. Um, you did mention something, though, that would be pretty provocative to a lot of people to actually consider uh, whether or not the time has come to reconsider uh, conditions as they are on the ground, that Assad is probably not going anywhere. And that uh, I don't think we necessarily need Russian troops. In fact, I think Russian troops or American troops would be equally bad in the taking back of Raqqa. But I think if you didn't have Assad's forces also battling whoever comes into the region, we had people here in the committee just recently saying, oh, well, the, the Kurds will take Raqqa. Well, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of people unhappy about the Kurds taking Raqqa, including Assad's forces. So I, I continue to believe there needs to be some kind of arrangement, and some of it's maybe regional autonomy to where people are within in Syria as, as of today. Um, but I think you continue to need that to have a final um, outcome of any sort there. Um, but uh, maybe you could expand a little bit upon what you think the, the odds of or whether the reasonability of actually discussing whether or not we don't have a precondition that Assad goes. So, Senator, thank you. Um, I, I, if I said that I supported uh, talking to Syria in my remarks, I misstated. I, I see a lot of problems with working uh, with Russia and Syria, and I'll talk about those in a moment. Uh, I, I still believe that in Syria, Russia has a hierarchy of what they're trying to do, and getting after ISIL is the last of that, that hierarchy. It's propping up the murderous regime of Assad. It's retaining access to naval and air bases in Syria. It is raising the statue of Russia as a great power out there in the world. It is uh, then getting after the moderate opposition, which in some cases we support, and then I would say last of the five, Russia is after ISIL or Daesh. And so I don't see their uh, priorities the same as ours in any way, shape, or form in Syria. Clearly, um, uh, we all want to get after Daesh and, or ISIL, however you would like to refer to them. Um, and having a conversation with Russia, I, I don't think is out of bounds, but we need to be clear-eyed and wide-eyed. My biggest concerns about that is to align ourselves with Iran and Russia in Syria would be very problematic to me. To align ourselves with Iran and Russia in support of Mr. Assad would be very tough for me to deal with. And as an F-16 fighter pilot, watching the way bombing has been conducted in Syria, to try to associate our type of conducting this conflict in Syria with Russia's way of conducting this conflict in Syria would be an affront to the way that I believe we should conduct that. And I'm not arguing there's, there's any equivalency. I'm arguing that the world is what it is, and we can say that Assad must go, but we've been saying that for a long time, and I would say at this point it's unlikely that Assad goes. Yeah. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Keynes, if Russian troops were used to clear Raqqa, is it likely that the number of civilian casualties because of the way they go about doing their business would be equivalent to the way that they do bombing right now? Senator, I'm not really sure that I can draw that clear a line. 
I, I think when you do ground warfare, it's going to be tough any way you do it. But I do agree with every statement of this, this committee so far. I do not uh, draw equivalency be, be, between the way we do business yeah. and the way they do business. Senator Keynes. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you uh, for lifting our eyes to the very real prospect that this is a moment and a challenge where this committee uh, is particularly relevant in a way it hasn't been in the past decade. And thank you uh, for your great uh, testimony, General Breedlove, Ms. Smith, uh, and for echoing a shared view, uh, a very clear-eyed view. Um, and I will remind you, um, a, a view that was raised repeatedly with now Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillerson about do they see Russian aggression clearly. As you both testified in recent years, the Russians have invaded and occupied Ukraine, armed and supported rebels in eastern Ukraine, um, they have committed atrocities in support of the murderous regime of Bashar al-Assad. They've sold an S-300 missile defense system to Iran, and they have directly attacked our democratic system. That we are not, in a strong and persistent bipartisan way, directly engaged in understanding this threat and pushing back on this threat concerns me gravely, and I'm grateful that this committee is stepping up to this challenge. So it seems to me that, as you testified, knowing that open and democratic societies that are critical, both military and economic and political allies of ours, face imminent elections, the Dutch elections, French elections, German elections, and hearing from you what I've heard from them, that they believe they also face the sort of hybrid warfare, intentional Russian efforts to undermine their democracy. Uh, I'm struck that we are not pushing relentlessly for a united effort. Um, Senator Cardin asked about what might we do to promote a democratic uh, initiative in Western Europe. I'll remind you some questioned the relevance of NATO in the course of the campaign. The Heritage Foundation has said that our alliances keep us safe, that NATO is not an act of charity. NATO is an act of self-interest and self-defense. It raises the cost to Russia of its aggression. And it is unclear whether we are united in our commitment to NATO. I agree with you that before anything is done to reset the table with Russia, we should meet with our NATO allies first and affirm the Warsaw commitments, and that we should make no move in Syria that strengthens Russia's hand on the ground and that would drag us into, I think, a devastating conflict. If I could just ask both of you to speak to, given the hybrid warfare and this new approach to warfare below the line that we have directly been affected by here in this country, what would you do to strengthen our Western European allies their democratic societies, their resolve and their capabilities to push back against the weaponization of information that is misused after being expropriated and the misuse of propaganda and in some cases direct financial support for candidates in their upcoming campaigns. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, I'm gonna be honest, this, this period in the transatlantic relationship is, is dire. And our allies are nervous and anxious, very anxious, about what's happening on their own continent, uh, what's happening in the transatlantic relationship. And frankly, some of the comments they've been hearing come out of Washington about the value we place on the NATO alliance and our views towards the European Union. They are under enormous pressure internally by the migration crisis, weak economies, uh, and externally um, by counterterrorism challenges, what Russia's doing to their democratic systems, um, the rise of far-right and populist parties, 
this is a very troubling time in the relationship. In terms of the way forward and the role of this committee and what Washington can do, first and foremost, we have to reassure our allies. I know there is an exceptionally large delegation going over to the Munich Security Conference next week. I find that very reassuring. Our allies will be reassured to see so many members coming um, and bringing such a large delegation. They're excited to hear from the Vice President. They're excited to hear from the Secretary of State. Uh, I look forward to those comments. I hope we can reassure our allies and let them know that we value this relationship and we would do nothing to undermine it. The last thing Europe wants to feel is to be in a position where Washington and Moscow are actually aligned in an anti-EU, anti-NATO position. That would be devastating to the European project. We should also maintain our force posture in Europe, maintain support for the European Deterrence Initiative. We should ensure that we're developing new tools inside the NATO alliance and working with the EU as well uh, to see what we can do in terms of enhancing our, uh, our counterterrorism cooperation, law enforcement, intelligence sharing. There's a long list of things here and there's plenty of work to do. But it must start first and foremost by reaffirming our commitment to this project. We are not a member of the European Union. We do not have a vote in this institution. We don't have a voice. But it is in some ways an American project, one we've invested a great deal in. Thank you, General. Uh, let me first say that I join all those remarks. Um, second, uh, as the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe past, number 17, uh, I am an unapologetic supporter of what NATO means to us and what we should be doing in support of NATO. If I could just add a little to what was said about this war below the lines or hybrid, really a small part of that is military. The rest of it is decidedly non-military and exists to contest all of those things that are the rest of our government, the rest of what we do. And so our, our allies have a hard time of seeing and understanding and characterizing it. I talk to them about being able to recognize a problem that it's not normal. Characterize it as not a legitimate political issue and then attribute it to an aggressor. And if they can get through that recognize, characterize, attribute, they can then go to the NAC with an Article 4 or an Article 5 and get support. Short of that, they may not be supported. So we need to look at our own capabilities and capacities and the capabilities and capacities of our allies to get through that, recognize, characterize, attribute. Can we see it? Can we detect it in cyber? Will we take the field in the information campaign? The speed and power of a Russian lie and how fast they can create them, and how long it takes us to debunk them. Two years to debunk the shoot-down of the aircraft in eastern Ukraine. And so I, I just believe we need to take the field and begin to look at those capabilities that we have and our allies have to recognize, characterize, attribute, to move out on these issues. Well, General, Ms. Smith, thank you for your testimony. Seven decades of peace in Europe was bought at an enormous price in American dollars and lives. Uh, and I think we should be fighting jointly for NATO and for our European allies. Thank you. Can agree more. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And to General Breedlove, you uh, spoke earlier about Ukraine. And let me just say that when you were Supreme Allied Commander, uh, you had the courage to stand for 
providing the Ukrainians the lethal weapons that they needed to defend themselves. Uh, and as you say, I won't say defensive because they can also be used offensively, but one reason I think we have the situation we're seeing on the eastern border of Ukraine today, which is dire, the ambassador wants to come see me today about it, um, is because we didn't act. But you stood up, uh, and you're not just saying it now after the fact, and you did so privately and publicly, and I appreciate that. I think NATO uh, needs to be described better, too. I mean, uh, do you think countries in NATO ought to contribute more to the defense of, uh, the mutual defense of all of us? Senator, thank you for that question, and I get asked this a lot. And so let me just, uh, let me get quickly through. I do believe that the nations of NATO need to contribute more. Okay, I don't want, I don't want to in interrupt you, but I have a lot of questions, so I just want to get that on the record. Uh, I think they do need to contribute more, and a better percentage of their GDP, and I think we shouldn't hesitate to ask for that and, and even insist on that. Second, I think there's a misunderstanding about the importance of NATO. I think the interoperability we have these NATO forces is a force multiplier in ways that perhaps we don't explain. Can you briefly talk about that from a military point of view? Absolutely, Senator. And, um, and then I would like two minutes to go back to that first one. We may not get that seconds. two minutes. I got, I got more interesting ones for you. Clearly, the interoperability of our NATO allies and some of our partners who are not allies um, is very important because it allows us to quickly assimilate the, ish, the combat power we might need in a tough place. That having been said, we all, including our military and certainly the militaries of Europe, need to look at our readiness and responsiveness in order to be able to respond. But maintaining that, uh, that ability to, to rapidly integrate and, and work together is clearly a huge uh, uh, deterrent. Interconnected communications, uh, logistical uh, interconnectedness, uh, the ability for us to have common tactics and doctrines, uh, invaluable, right? And that helps us to be able to, again, to tell our taxpayers uh, and our citizens this is, a, this is a good investment for our military. Let's talk about Russia for a moment. There's a lot of discussion about the possibility of aligning with Russia to fight ISIS. All of us want to take down ISIS, as you said earlier. But with regard to that interoperability, um, can you talk a little about what we have with with Russia? How effective would a joint military campaign be with Russia, as an example? Even in, in Syria, should we have the same interests, which as you know, we, we seem not to, but with the broader campaign against ISIS? Senator, if you would allow me, I'll talk about problems, I think, of the U.S. and Russia fighting alongside of each other. Uh, I think that uh, uh, people with more experience in CENTCOM could better speak specifically to the Syria piece of it. But what I do know is that, uh, that in observing what has happened in, in Syria over the past months and years, we do not have the same approach to targeting. We talk about collateral damage. Yes, we still have some collateral damage, but it is minuscule compared to wars of the past. We approach protecting uh, non-belligerent life in a very different way. We have a not adequately deep, but deeper bench of precision weapons. And what we saw is the Russians used precision weapons only for a short time and then went to unguided, fairly indiscriminate weaponry. I don't find that we are well aligned in the way we would conduct a fight. And that would and we also don't have the interoperability in terms of weapons and communications and technology. Uh, I think it's a point that sometimes is lost in this discussion. And I'm not suggesting that we don't have the ability to work with Russia where we can find common ground. But I think it's 
clear that we do not have this capability with Russia that we have, for instance, with, with our NATO allies, and that ought to be considered. You talked about warfare below the line, as you called it. Uh, the Russians sometimes call it the new generation war, and Ukraine is a good example of it. Uh, I appreciate the fact, uh, Ms. Smith, that you talked about this issue and specifically the connection between the propaganda and the uh, cyber attacks, um, the troll farms on social media, the funding of useful think tanks, uh, political organizations, state-sponsored media, and so on. One thing I was concerned about, even in how the Obama administration responded to what the Russians are alleged to have done here with our campaign, is that their own executive order uh, was designed to punish cyber attacks and hacking and not these information campaigns. I think it's much broader than that. And I guess my question to you would be, you know, how can we be more effective? We did establish legislation. Uh, Senator Murphy and I had put forward this legislation. It was part of the NDAA. It's now set up over a two-year period, $160 million authorized for this Global Engagement Center to deal with this broader issue of disinformation. Uh, is that, in your view, a good idea? That's to consolidate all the agencies, to make one agency accountable, to actually provide grants for NGOs and others to fight back on the front lines? Uh, should we be doing more? And, and, and do you agree with me that these cyber attacks are a huge problem, but that the broader problem is really this broader campaign of disinformation? Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge problem, and our large bureaucratic structures are just ill-equipped to deal with this challenge. We're not moving fast enough. We're not uh, really working on detection, deterrence, our defense of these systems. But most importantly, we haven't really figured out to date uh, how to link up with the private sector and utilize expertise that exists above and beyond what the government can offer. And I think if we're going to win this information war and really come at Russia uh, with a much more effective approach, we're going to have to figure out ways in which we can lash up the skill sets that we have in the private sector, build better trust there to assess our vulnerabilities, and then connect with our allies to do so. So I support the work that you've put forward, the initiatives, legislation, and, and all the rest. I think we have not served this country well with the efforts to date. We have to be much more quicker on our feet and far more innovative in working with a wider set of actors to really get a grip on this. So I would support that, absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you. We good? Senator Sheehan. Thank you. Thank you both very much for being here and for your testimony. Um, I think it's very clear that part of Russia's strategy is not just what they're doing in terms of military buildup and interference in Eastern Europe and but also their effort to undermine our democratic processes as they did in the United States. It's very clear that they interfered in our election. So what other steps can we take to address that kind of interference? Are the sanctions, in your view, are the sanctions helpful? Should we ratchet those up? Are there other actions that we should take? And should we be working with Europe as we look at Russia's attempts to interfere in the French and German elections. And also, I want to ask you separately about the Balkans, but maybe I can ask you to start with that. 
Well, thank you, Senator. Um, I do think uh, that Congress should reimpose the sanctions legislatively. Uh, I think we should uh, certainly maintain what already exists, but go above and beyond it, working with our European allies. Um, but first and foremost, we really need to establish the facts of what exactly transpired last fall. We need a much more public discussion of this. A lot of it remains classified. Our public deserves to know, our allies need to know, as they prepare for these elections. As was noted earlier, there will be several elections in Europe next year. The signals we're getting from those allies is that they're already seeing a spike in Russian cyber activity. And so first and foremost, we need to establish what happened last fall and do our very best to determine from that set of facts how we will then prevent and deter attacks in the future, both on our system and on the system of our European allies. General Breedlove. Senator, thank you. And if I might, it's not going to sound very military, but, but part of what happens here is Russia puts out a lot of disinformation that they really don't care whether learned people seeing as being false. They're appealing to groups of people who want to believe them in the first place in many of these countries. And what I haven't seen among the Western nations who are under this attack is a strong, unified voice of indignation, outrage, and to bring force to this. We see parcel, penny packet responses that don't come strongly either in a policy sense or in just a public message sense. And I think that the West, who is under a track here, needs to bring this together to, to out the behavior and then try to erode that base of people that want to believe them. I couldn't agree more with both of you, and I think it is very sad and disappointing that this Congress has not acted more forcefully to make public, um, in a much broader sense, what we know about what happened and to take action to address it. So I, I appreciate that Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin have talked about the importance of an investigation, but an investigation that goes on for the next two years is not an investigation at all. It's an effort to obstruct what happened. And sadly, what we're seeing from the White House is support for that kind of obstruction. So I hope we will take action and do it in a way that's very forceful. With respect to the Balkans, we're also seeing Russian interference in the Balkans in a way that is much um, in a situation where we have countries that are not as established in terms of their democratic processes. So can you talk about whether there, we should be looking separately at what's going on there, and is there particular support you think we should be giving to some of our friends in the Balkans? Uh, well, Senator, you're, you're right. Thank you to point out the vulnerabilities that one finds in this corner of Europe. These are, in many ways, embryonic uh, democratic systems that do have vulnerabilities like our own system. And we've already seen some very blatant attempts um, by the part, uh, on the part of the Russians to undermine the political processes. I believe it was Senator Cardin that mentioned earlier the specific case of Montenegro. There have been uh, just blatant attempts to overthrow governments uh, in this part of Europe. And uh, I, I agree with General Breedlove, 
Our strongest asset right now is transatlantic resolve and unity in calling this out. And frankly, we don't have that right now. And until we get that, we will not be able to come at Russia from a position of strength with common transatlantic positions and tools and support those young, frail democracies in places like the Balkans. Thank you. Senator Again, I join Senator those Reba. remarks. I think that, that we have made huge investment in this part of the world, and some of the things that we value the most in democratic institutions have a real chance. We should not now wither from the task. And uh, again, I think there is a lack of a strong, broad European voice because there are some nations that are backing away from it a little bit in order not to provoke Russia and others. And I think we need a strong, unified Western and European voice to put this right in the Balkans. Thank you both. If I could, just to, for the record, I, 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 I feel the same way you do about making sure we do this quickly. I don't think you intended to say that Ben and I are, are stonewalling an investigation. No, no. What I intended to say was that I appreciate the fact that you all have come out in support of doing an investigation. Good. And, and actually, um, trying to coordinate, although it's been very difficult, with other committees that have jurisdiction um, to make sure that this does not take a long time but happens in a very speedy way and goes from the beginning to the end. Um, I just, I, I knew you didn't intend that. I just want to make sure the record indicated and, and Mr. that. Mr. Chairman, can I point out that under your leadership, the chairman and ranking members of the relevant committees are meeting in order to share information about what every committee is doing, and I thank you for coordinating the work. But if I could, Mr. Chairman, just to be, try to be more clear, um, I do think there are, um, principals and people within the Congress who would like to see an investigation drag on to the point that um, the public forgets about it. Yeah, that, that's very possible, very possible. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, I, I thank our panelists for being here today. Uh, General Breedlove, uh, based on your years of experience, your observation uh, that in the wake of the Cold War, we drew down our military forces in Europe, uh, seemingly on the assumption that, that Russia posed uh, less of a threat. And understandably, I, I think at the time, there many harbored uh, that assumption. Times have changed, which is why we're holding this opportunity about the challenges ahead and, and uh, implicitly the opportunities. Um, you argue in your prepared statement that the U.S. should adopt a position of forward defense in dealing with uh, the Kremlin. Uh, and uh, there are many challenges to NATO and the broader uh, rules-based world order. Specifically, in terms of our military posture, uh, what do you recommend? Uh, where should new forces uh, uh, be placed? What should the composition of those forces be? Uh, if you'd kindly speak to, kind of give, give us your summary view uh, of, of that issue, please. Thank you for the opportunity, Senator. I do believe in uh, an increased forward defense, and not to give a history lesson, but we started in Wales making a change to NATO and making a change in U.S. support to NATO. In Wales, we said this is not the end. We're going to have to look at more. That was to assure allies in Warsaw. And before Warsaw, we adopted a change whereby we said we now need to move to more of a deterrent posture. And what does deterrent, deterrence mean? And I said leading into that, 
that summit, that it is the road through Warsaw, not the road to Warsaw. In other words, we would probably have to relook even after the changes we've made in Warsaw, which you see happening today. The battalion arrivals in the Baltic nations, the, the brigade arrivals in Poland and others. I do believe it is a road through Warsaw. We are not where we need to be. I would give you a broad recipe. First of all, we are looking at prepositioning of materials. I believe our NATO allies need to come alongside of us and they look at prepositioning of materials forward. Being able to rapidly join forces to materials rather than having to move the weaponry materials to Europe gives us a quicker response. So I do believe we need to look at more rotational force, more forward-based preposition materials in order to rapidly fall in on those. And I think that we should encourage our allies to come more forcefully alongside of us in both respects. Do you regard the, the military uh, rotation as sufficient um, in, into and out of, of the Balkans? I note that the, the border uh, between, on one hand, Russia and Belarus, and on the other hand, are, are, are uh, uh, Balkan countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, is roughly the same length as the border of, uh, that we had between West Germany and the Warsaw Pact. Much greater uh, military presence at that time. Um, is, is that the correct, uh, should we be looking at that as, as, as a benchmark or do you feel like uh, the military rotation is sufficient for the times? Senator, I've been fairly vocal in the past that, that I meant to say Balkan, Baltic as opposed yes, to Balkan. Yes, yeah, thanks. Um, I've been fairly uh, straightforward in the past that I believe the, the real and perfect solution would be increased permanent forward forces. But I do not think that's a realistic uh, opportunity in today's setting. I, I, I don't mean to be uh, forward, too forward here, but I'm, I'm not sure that any of you would sign up to moving forces out of your states to permanently to, to Europe. And so I, as a realist, looked at how we should look at rotational forces and forward preposition materials as, as, as a lesser but acceptable uh, solution. So why should um, a, a rank-and-file Hoosier, I consider myself one, uh, why should they care uh, about uh, Europe? Why, and, and how might I, I defend to them uh, the benefits of the United States of, of having troops in Europe? So I think my colleague might have some really good words here, too. I would put it very straightforward. Two of the most destructive wars in the history of this world have been fought in Europe. Yeah. And thousands and thousands of American soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines are buried there as a testament to what it cost us. We are inextricably linked to our European allies. And the commerce between us still is almost half of that in the world. We are not going to be separated from Europe. And what we don't need is to be complacent and slip into another very costly conflict there. Thank you. And Ms. Smith, thank you for your presence here today. Uh, you provided some excellent written uh, testimony with respect to uh, Europe's energy dependence uh, on the Russians. And I know you'll have some thoughts on, on things we might do uh, 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 or not do. Uh, to, to help our European allies uh, address their challenges on that front. So I'll be submitting some written questions uh, to you. Thank you. Thank you, and I really appreciate you joining our committee. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Senator Kane. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair, and great testimony to the witnesses. I just add my voice to those who have said Congress has to get to the bottom of this investigation of Russia and the effect on the 2016 elections. No ally will believe we will help them if we don't show that we're interested in protecting ourselves. If we are unwilling to protect ourselves, we lose credibility with everybody on the theory that we can be a, uh, an assistance and a supporter to them, whether it's about free elections or anything. This was an attack on the United States. And if we treat it in a lackadaisical manner, we lose credibility as a partner with anyone in the world. I am deeply worried that the President and some members of the administration want this to go away. And that's going to create challenges. But it's a test of this branch, and the Article I branch is Article I for a reason, as to whether we show resolve and get to the bottom of it. So I echo my, com my colleagues who've made that comment. So many things to ask about. I want to just ask about the, uh, one, the Russia-Iran relationship. We're in an Armed Services Committee hearing, too, that I came from, and the, the witness this morning was General Nicholson, who was talking about uh, current uh, posture of the U.S. effort and the NATO effort in Afghanistan. And here was something he said in his testimony. Russia has become more assertive over the past year in Afghanistan, overtly lending legitimacy to the Taliban to undermine NATO efforts and bolster belligerents using the false narrative that only the Taliban are fighting ISIL. Similarly, neighboring Iran is providing support to the Taliban while also engaging the Afghan government over issues of water rights, trade, and security. General Nicholson, Nicholson talked about, he didn't say they were collaborating together, but he said both Iran and Russia were supporting the Taliban in their efforts to destabilize the, the government of Afghanistan. Uh, President Trump made a comment a couple weeks ago that suggested that he thought he could work with Russia even to check Iran, but the Kremlin immediately came out and said, no, that's not the case. Uh, Iran is an ally and friend. Talk a little bit about the Russia posture vis-a-vis -vis Iran right now, whether that's just an alliance of convenience on a couple of issues or whether this is something that we're going to have to deal with more long term as we think through these issues. Thank you, Senator. Um, just 10 seconds. I forgot to mention the importance of getting Montenegro into the NATO alliance, mm -hmm. and I really want to get that out there. And uh, just the, the, and the importance of ratifying to, to move forward. And then just quickly, uh, 20 seconds on what you say to your average American. I'm from the state of Michigan. What I say to my friends and family in Michigan is, when there is a crisis, the first people you're going to call for help are in Europe, whether it's Ebola, the rise of ISIL, or Russia invading Ukraine. And you're not going to call anybody else. And that's just the bottom line. They're the best allies we have. Um, on, on Iran, um, I, it's funny. When we talk about Russia in the Middle East, we get really consumed with with what Russia's doing in Syria, and that's really the focus of so much of, of the work in this town from a think tank community, what the government <coughs> focuses on. But the reality is that Russia is actually working to undermine a series of relationships that the U.S. has throughout the Middle East. We should note not only the linkage between Russia and Iran, and I too am incredibly skeptical that we would pull Russia over to our side and that they would abandon this relationship with Iran, that they would abandon their relationship 
relationship with China, um, which I think has also been put out there as an idea. I think we're completely misrepresenting uh, Russia's interests in these relationships. But again, back to the point I was just making, we should note that Russia is enhancing its relationships with Turkey, with Egypt, with Israel, with the Saudis. We need to step back and take a look at this Egypt. and figure out what it's doing in the wider region. What Russia is doing in the Middle East is not just about Syria. And we need to be on alert and tracking this and understand how it's undermining our relationship with the NATO ally in, the, in this region. So thank you for bringing this up. Uh, I think it's right, I'm, I'm interested in what General Breedlove has to say, but I personally am extremely skeptical that we are going to pursue uh, the Russians to suddenly align with us, particularly given their relationship, they're working together in Syria. How would we peel them away from each other? I just find that, to me, it seems very unimaginable, but please, General. In opening remarks, the chairman in the ranking talked about the uh, episode where Iran had provided basing for Russian military efforts. I, I again, am completely aligned with my uh, with my colleagues' remarks, and all I would add is that there seems to be now um, a lot of instances where Russia and Iran are finding that their interests align and they're becoming more and more cooperative, and, and that's a troubling thing in a military sense. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, thank you very much. Senator Isaacson. Mr. Chairman, at the previous hearing we had, you made a profound statement, which I have repeated in front of you a couple of times, and that was Syria was a war of proxies, plural proxies, a lot of them, which I thought was very true, which make that, that war very difficult to deal with in terms of our relationships. You, you made a comment today that we had a, a Republican and a Democrat witness, I think a majority and minority witness. I've listened to the testimony. I can't tell which one is which. Can you tell me which one is which? General Breedlove is the Republican, uh, Ms. Smith is a Democrat, uh, and yet uh, uh, as this committee is on most issues, um, they're very aligned. Which brings me to the point I, I want to make for a second, because I was sitting here trying to figure out which was which. I was favoring Mr. Breedlove, General Breedlove, because he's a Sam Nunn professor, and Sam Nunn's one of my dear friends and a great American senator who led this country in many ways through the Cold War, 24 years service. But my, my suggestion to think about is this. Being old enough to have been in college at the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I remember when John Kennedy put pictures of the missile silos and the missiles on the back of the ships that were going headed to Cuba and drew a line in the sand with Nikita Khrushchev, which was the most memorable moment in my early years of life because it was a tense time. We all thought we were going to fight because it was that big a threat. The absence of knowing exactly what the cyber threat is is the equivalent to that period of time. Because if we had a picture of cyber potential, like we had a picture of those missiles, it would be pretty clear what we ought to do. I don't know what the cyber threat really is. I'm not a good technology guy. I don't know what that is. But the quicker we know what the potential of that threat is and can paint that picture, the quicker we can have a more solidified approach towards dealing with Russia. And my closing point, and I'm not closing out, but my closing point is my two favorite presidents were one, one John Kennedy, a Democrat, and the other was Ronald Reagan, a Republican, and for two principal reasons. Both were hawks, but both had the ability to stand up before the American people and argue a point that the American people might have disagreed with and win them over. Kennedy did it in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Reagan did it with the speech in Berlin about the Berlin Wall. 
And in the end, communism fell after Reagan's speech and Nikita Khrushchev backed up after Kennedy's speech. We're getting to a point in time in U.S.-Russian relationships in contemporary times where if there is such, if there is such evidence out there of the danger of the cyber attacks that would be as, danger, as dangerous a collateral effect as the Cuban Missile Crisis was, we ought to be very clear in our policy. It ought to be bipartisan, and we ought to be direct with the Russian people and the Russian leadership. So I'm not trying to make a speech. That just occurred to me those two times in history are very, very analogous. What do you, let me ask both of you the, the $64,000 question. To you, the extent that you have the knowledge of it, what is the Russian capability of cyber use? That I'll jump on that us. grenade first. Um, I just remarked that I thought this was a very interesting analogy of the potential of cyber to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and I think in severity, it is exactly right. I would only offer one thing. We understood a little better how to address the Cuban Missile Crisis because it was a decisively military feeling thing and we had very decisive military responses. The cyber thing is even more scary to me because we, we haven't really defined what is an attack. We haven't really defined policies that say how we're going to respond. We, we still, now I'll use the we of NATO, we still shirk from thinking about offensive cyber and only think of defensive cyber when our opponent has taken the gloves off completely. And so I'm a little more scared, Senator, about the cyber thing because we really haven't got a framework yet by which to address it. I would just add that General uh, Breedlove and I were participating in a tabletop exercise yesterday, and there were different moves throughout the game, as there always are. Uh, and uh, when you had any conventional military operation on the part of our adversaries, you would see participants looking at the order of battle. So what tools do I have in my toolkit and how do I respond and move posture and move military assets to respond to the threat at hand? The minute the team had to deal with a potential cyber hack that had been inserted into the game, you could see people were flipping. There's no order of battle. There's no. We don't know what what the toolkit looks like. We don't have a proper way to assess uh, the threat, to figure out what we will, what tools we'll use to deter it, uh, to detect it. We're getting better. The United States is certainly far ahead of, of many other countries around the world, but we still are far too clumsy in, in our response and our ability to cope with this challenge. I would only add, Mr. Chairman, but we proved ourselves as a nation when we located the Cyber Command at Fort Gordon next to NSA in Georgia, that we, when we compared the cyber security of this country with NSA and put them side by side, there is a comparison there that we recognize that's important and this is a real potential threat we need to try and be able to quantify and paint a picture of. So instead of talking about generalities, we're talking about specifics. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I don't think anybody has brought greater clarity to that issue than you just did. And it not only matters to us, but let's face it, NATO's been wrestling with what an Article 5 attack is. So we don't need to just understand for our own good what a weaponized cyber attack means, but we need to help the world define it because very soon it's likely that in parts adjacent, parts of the world adjacent to Russia, uh, it will be more weaponized, and we're going to have to make a decision as to whether we're coming to the aid of one of our allies. So uh, very, very important point. Thank you for making it.
Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and, and I find this hearing incredibly important. Uh, I am concerned, uh, and it will take the Congress, particularly the Senate, <clears throat> to help lead on these issues with Russia. Because, um, you know, there are times that we have led when administrations have not sought to be engaged or to be engaged in the way that we collectively have thought is necessary. Iran is a great example of that. And my sense and my concern with this administration on Russia is profound. I only hear you can impugn uh, our allies of longstanding, but you treat with a soft velvet glove one of the most significant strategic challenges we have with Russia. You can actually say that there is a moral equivalency that we have killers here and that the United States, do you think the United States is so good when you are speaking vis-a-vis -vis Russia, who poisons its opposition, kills its opposition, invades another country, violates the international norm, goes ahead and indiscriminately bombs uh, in Aleppo civilians, and somehow you can even fashion a statement that there is some degree of equivalency? It's shocking, shocking. And then to have a cyber attack against the United States to pursue the very fundamental elements of democracy in the world's greatest democracy and therefore spend, send a message globally and not have a sense of urgency about an investigation into such, it's shocking to me. If this was a different time, I would hear a different chorus of voices. So I really do hope, I really do hope, and I'm proud to see that some of our colleagues are moving in that direction, whether it be the legislation that Senator Cardin spoke to, to have a congressional review as to whether sanctions should be relieved on Russia if, in fact, they have not met their obligations under international norms or to further pursue sanctions, as I understand from listening in my office in between meetings, some of the commentary and testimony has been taken here. I, I, I really am, am, am concerned. And so I, I think this is incredibly important for us to continue to take a role. And I personally have never necessarily waited for an administration to give me the green light. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it is what we collectively think is important. And sometimes the Senate leads in these regards. And, we get uh, others to realize it's the right policy. Let me ask you some specific questions. Uh, General Breedlove, I know you had a conversation with Senator Portman. I just want to just make, get these two statements on the record. We all aspire for NATO to meet its obligations 2% across the board without uh, equivocation. But as we seek to make that happen, the absence of any given country not having 2% should never undermine the very essence of the importance of NATO to us. Is that a fair statement? Senator, if I could, if I could answer uh, that question, but but uh, finish what I was going to say. Here. I've got a minute and thirty seconds, so 20, you, you give me. I'll give you twenty seconds. Two percent is incredibly important. Yeah. Of that two percent, as important to me is the twenty percent investment in recapitalization of equipment. If all two percent are spent on just personnel, 
it's not that relevant to me. But, but it's important to us as a force multiplier and the hosting bases, among other things, in our own national interest and security. Is that not a fair statement? That is correct. And, and then what let, I would me also ask, let me ask you this. Would it be wrong, and I ask you this to both of you, would it be wrong to remove sanctions on Russia unless Russia uh, ultimately resolves what it has done in invading Crimea and Ukraine and restores its obligations under the international order. Would it not be fair to say that that would send the wrong message globally? Absolutely. It would be wrong to trade sanctions for anything outside of Russia's actions in Ukraine. Those sanctions are there for a reason. They are not arbitrary, and they should only be lifted when we see a change in Russian policy inside Ukraine. Senator Breedlin? I mean, General Breedlin? I, I abstract. Maybe you want to run for the Senate. That might be a bad thing, so. I'm not qualified for that, sir. Um, I, would, I would just say that uh, a conditionality, as you've described it, is absolutely key to me. Yeah. I, I have other questions, but I'll wait if we get another round. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I doubt very seriously, after being the supreme allied commander, that he would, he would want to be called senator. So uh, with that, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I will just remind my colleagues that uh, in the last Congress, our European subcommittee, this committee, did hold a hearing on political assassinations in Russia. We held a hearing on the propaganda and, and misinformation campaigns of Russia. I, I don't recall those hearings being particularly well attended. So, you know, when, when I certainly found, of, found out about the, and we all found out, I mean, America was well aware of the fact that uh, cyber was hacking, or Russia was hacking into emails and publicizing these things. Uh, I wasn't shocked. Uh, their, their methods have been well known. Uh, cyber warfare, when it comes to political interference, is just a new tool. Uh, to define cyber warfare, by the way, there are some classifications. You have criminal theft, you have industrial espionage, you have political interference, then you have cyber warfare, and we also have seen that in Ukraine. The, the incredibly sophisticated cyber attack that shut down their, their utilities, their electrical grid. So, so we do see this, and that's really the, the line of questions I want to pursue with the General Breedlove. Can you describe to me paint that picture of what Russia is doing right now in eastern Ukraine. We're hearing reports of stepped-up activity. We know, I think, reports are that about 30,000 troops in Crimea. What is happening in eastern Ukraine right now? Senator, I must disqualify a little bit. It's been six months since I've had the really good classified briefings. But as I follow this in the open press and others, nothing surprises me that I hear being reported. Continued pressure on the line of contact that pressure does not happen unless it's supported from without. Uh, the use of uh, very sophisticated, not only electronic warfare capabilities, but surveillance, uh, UAVs, RPAs, whatever you want to, you want to call them. Um, this support clearly comes from outside of the, the, uh, the forces that are east of the line of contact. And the cyber piece, um, this, I think we don't know what we don't know. What we see is a sophisticated hybrid, or as I've described it, below the line set of warfare in Ukraine. If they can just delay Ukraine making the changes to their government that the Maidan required long enough, there could be another Maidan to oust this government that's trying to get it done. They need to break contact. At what, what, what do we know that we can discuss in this uh, setting? in terms of Russian troop levers, levels in eastern Ukraine? 
Um, sir, I'm, I'm unqualified to answer that question right now. I just pro, pro, so pro, when you were qualified, yes. Are, are we aware that there were I mean, absolutely was, there are today um, in the thousands? Would you estimate in the thousands? Sir, I again, I'm, okay. I'm unqualified. Uh, if I could, just at one time, tens of thousands. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about what we have done in terms of training Ukrainian military to respond. And I want to know specifically, I mean, how many, how many troops should we preposition in, whether it's the Baltics, in Poland, what should we provide specifically to Ukraine so they can defend themselves? So, Senator, our training has been centered on an area called Yavriv. It's in the extreme western part of Ukraine. I'll be there next Tuesday again, by the way. And we have been training first what they call their National Guard troops. It doesn't really translate like ours does, but we've then finished a series of training in the National Guard troops and battalions. And we are now training uh, some of the what we would call active duty troops there. The Ukrainians are being very smart. They're bringing battle-hardened leaders off, marrying them with new recruits, putting them through our training with our U.S. Army forces there in Yavriv, and we're turning out battalions and battalion leadership that are quite good. Um, uh, this should continue. Uh, that is one of the pieces that we recommended for Ukraine. Again, I'm just trying to lay out the reality. As in Georgia, Russia invaded, they've set up shop, they continue to pressure. I mean, they have a fait accompli. Crimea, the same way, 30,000 troops. Is that basically what they're establishing in eastern Ukraine? Clearly, right now, they are established in that in eastern Ukraine. There are learned voices on both sides that would argue they want to stay or they don't want to stay. But clearly, at the moment, they have established that handhold in the Donbass, and there doesn't appear to be any movement to release it. The migrant flow from the Middle East into Europe is just on its face destabilizing. What is the, what, what, what is the possibility, the successful possibility of actually setting up safe zones so that we can really stop the, the migrant flow out of Syria? That's a big question. 11 seconds. So, so sir, the, the tough part about safe zones is they begin with a belligerent act. If you're gonna set up a safe zone, you have to eliminate the enemy's defenses in that safe zone. If we set up a safe zone and it falls under the coverage of Syrian air defense, we would have to eliminate the Syrian air defense. Our nation would have to make a policy decision that it would take these actions in order to establish a safe zone. And that I think is a, is a, is a tough discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, thank you, General. I used a portion of my time, and Ms. Smith, I couldn't agree more with the comments that have been made as far as getting to the bottom of what has happened. And I will say, Ben and I both are probably very frustrated at the way um, this has begun. And it's great to find out what happened, obviously, and we need to deal with that. I guess I would ask the question, we knew it was happening. We've known it's been happening. Clear evidence showed it was happening strongly beginning last March. Why do you think we didn't take actions when we could have blunted it? Well, it's hard. I left the administration in 2013. I was not privy to the discussions that they were having in the last few months of the administration when they started to get signals that this was underway. 
Um, you know, we can all look at the public statements that the president made uh, weeks and months later, talking about um, how it would be received by the American public, what kind of political frame we were operating in at the time, um, questions about the proper types of responses to Russia. So again, I'd rather let the administration speak for itself. I was not part of that team making that decision. And I have what you have, and that's what the president has said publicly. General Breedlove, do you have any reason why we wouldn't have immediately countered what was happening while it was happening? Um, I would also just say that uh, in, at the time, Senator, as you understand, my job was to provide my military advice, and I was doing that. What I heard uh, in this capital and what I heard in many of the other capitals was a, a reticence to provoke Russia. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, for the record, I think this issue did r rise to the level to, uh, uh, to the principles. There was a conversation between President Obama and Putin on this subject, and reporting that I've read suggested that that had some effect, at least on decisions that might have been made regarding Election Day interference. But I think it's a good question that you're asking. And just add me to the chorus of worry that you're hearing from this committee, that there is not going to be a bipartisan investigation, that there is not going to be a bipartisan response with sanctions levied from this Congress. I take you at your word, and I'm glad to hear Senator Cardin's comments that you are trying to push uh, this process forward as quickly as possible. But we are five weeks into this uh, new Congress, and pretty soon we'll be 10 weeks, and then we'll be 15 weeks. And I don't really know how we can expect Europe to take a strong stand against Russian interference in U.S. elections if the message is so muddled coming out of the United States. President Trump spent uh, weeks and weeks attacking the intelligence community for their, um, uh, for their report uh, stating unequivocally that there was Russian interference in these elections. He later corrected himself, but we have the ability in a bipartisan way to set the record straight here and then to take action. And so I'm glad that you're pushing on your colleagues, but many of us do believe that this is um, you know, just a slow walk, not by you, but perhaps by others, uh, so that we never get to the facts. Um, I wanna ask just a couple questions, um, two questions really, and the first is, is about what messages matter, because one of the things that worry us is that we're hearing conflicting messages from this administration about Russia. And so I'll just put this to you, General Breedlove. There's been a lot of praise here for uh, Ambassador Haley's remarks on uh, Russia and Ukraine, and I share that praise. But two days after she made her remark, President Trump was asked about the Russian presence in eastern Ukraine, and his response was, we don't really know exactly what that is. They're pro-forces. We don't know, are they uncontrollable? Are they controlled? That happens also. We're going to find out. I would be surprised, but we'll see. I don't really know what that means, but it was widely reported uh, that he was uh, casting doubt um, at the highest levels of the American government on whether there were uh, Russian control and command or Russian involvement in the forces in eastern Ukraine. So I guess my, my question is this. Um, who are the Russians listening to, right? Does, are they listening to Nikki Haley or are they listening to President Trump? I was giving my colleague a chance to 
jump into that one. <laughs> Senator, <laughs> Senator Levity was not intended. It's just I was giving a moment there. No. Uh, I'm happy to wait. Sir, if you would allow, there are two messages that matter to me, and they are completely disconnected for any, from any of the current political uh, conversations. The two messages I've been delivering for a long time the first message as it relates to Russia is the solidarity of the NATO alliance. Mm -hmm. What they fear most is an indivisible NATO. What Mr. Putin tries to do every day is find ways to find cracks in NATO to divide it and therefore render it neutral. And so the first and foremost and most important message I ever saw, and I watched the whale summit come to it early, is the absolute solidarity of our alliance and commitment to Article 5. But, but isn't that, but I, I guess my point is, isn't that evidence of a pretty significant crack when the President of the United States casts doubt on whether the Russians are controlling or involved in forces in eastern Ukraine? It is. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it is. It's, it's worrisome to our allies because they're not exactly sure which narrative is the right one. They're hearing conflicting messages when it comes to the EU, NATO, and Russia repeatedly among cabinet members of this administration and the president. And what they're waiting for is some clarity on which view will prevail? Will what we heard from Ambassador Nikki Haley recently about Ukraine and Russia hold to be true? Or will we, in fact, see an administration and a president moving towards a grand bargain? This is of deep concern to our European allies. I meet, like you, regularly with delegations, with ambassadors coming through from Europe. They do not like what they're hearing right now coming from our president in terms of an unwillingness to call out the Russians for what they've done and what they're doing, and an unwillingness, it's, it appears, to stand with the EU during this very turbulent and difficult time. I, I I, may, I, may I jump on the second <laughs> yeah, part? Yeah, sure. As it relates to Ukraine, I think that the most important message is that everything that has happened there is completely Ill illegitimate and outside the boundaries of the norms we expect by nations in Europe. Russia has put force back on the table to change internationally recognized borders in the European landmass, and I think that's unacceptable. And I think those messages don't change based on any of the... I just bring it back to the chairman's point. To the extent there are mixed messages, it's more important than ever that messages coming from Congress and this committee are as clear and as bipartisan as possible. And in, in spite of the unfortunate statements that end up being made, I think there are folks within the administration that have a very, very different point of view. And I think us working with them to empower them to uh, to create policies that we would support uh, is something that we can play a role in doing. Um, with that, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to our witnesses today for this hearing. It's a very timely hearing, important hearing. Uh, today, I sent a letter to President Trump with a number of uh, colleagues in this committee, um, Senators Young, Portman, uh, and others uh, on the Defense Committee and Intel Committee to suggest a sensible policy path for the administration to take with regard to our relationship with Russia. As the letter states, and I'd ask that it be submitted for the record, I have it right here. As the letter states, the administration should pursue a, and I quote, a results-oriented but tough-minded and principled policy toward the Russian Federation. 
a policy where we should seek common ground with Russia in the areas of mutual interest, but never at the expense of our fundamental interests of defending our allies and promoting our values. We have to relay our values and be clear to Russia, uh, but values like human rights are simply non-negotiable. In addition, yesterday I introduced a bipartisan resolution with Senator Blumenthal, Senator Rubio, uh, to express our unequivocal support for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, which is indisputably the greatest military alliance in modern history. Uh, the solidarity that you talked about we must maintain and, and stress and remains the key to global peace and security. The resolution also notes that NATO uh, states must fully meet all of their financial obligations. You talked about, and I want to ask a question about the uh, making sure that our allies are more forcefully alongside us uh, in our efforts. And I know uh, U.S. taxpayers appreciate the bipartisan message to our allies. Um, last month, uh, last uh, excuse me, last year, excuse me, last month, 4th Infantry Division troops from Fort Carson in Colorado were deployed to uh, the European Theater to defend our NATO allies. And last year, I had the opportunity to visit with you. Uh, in uh, NATO headquarters along with other uh, Fort Carson uh, uh, soldiers stationed in Europe. So General Breedlove, certainly great to see you again. Uh, had a great visit with you. We talked about several things, including muscle memory in Europe, uh, the fact that the European Reassurance Initiative uh, stationing uh, our, our, our soldiers in Europe helps us bring back muscle memory of what it means to be in Europe in the face of Russian aggression. So I guess two questions. Could you talk a little bit about that muscle memory? How are we? Are we gaining, regaining that muscle memory? Uh, and number two, on February 3rd uh, last year, RAND released a study, Corporation released a study that claimed that Russia forces could overturn the three Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in about 60 hours. As a result of that regain of muscle memory, have we turned back the clock? Senator, thank you. And uh, past the two and the 2%, the other intangible we don't talk about and some of our allies do wonderfully at is give us exquisite access to their uh, bases and capabilities. It's an intangible that is hard to measure, but I think it needs to be also a part of our conversation. The muscle memory in Europe um, that we talked about there is uh, a lot of skill sets that we lost across the last two decades. As we have, uh, our military has gone away from large scale operations and moved towards counterinsurgency, or as I call it, coin. The size, scope, and speed of those two problems is very different. And so we're beginning to fight now to regain that. La Trident Juncture exercise recently in the past, trying to gain scale and the skills to, to meet that scale. There's a lot of problems yet, a couple of those classified I would love to talk to you about another time. But the bottom line is, uh, how long does it take 20 years of losing muscles? It may take a lot longer than a year to regain that 20 years. And so we're on our way. The attitude and the approach is correct. We just need to keep moving forward. Um, the RAND study, I get asked about this almost every time I'm in front of a group. Dave Akmanik is a great friend and a wonderful human being and incredibly brilliant, and I don't question what he came to. But every study is based on what are the assumptions up front. If our nation and if NATO can take policy decisions at speed and get in front of a problem, it changes the answer that Dave came to. If we cannot make decisions at speed, we will face the problems that Dave came up to in his uh, studies. So under that analysis that Rand did, assuming you keep the same assumptions that they made, would it still be 60 hours or would it be greater? 
Sir, I wasn't a part of the exercise, so I, 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 I would, I'm not really qualified to judge to that. Um, going back to Ms. Smith, a little bit of the questions uh, on cyber. The, I guess, head of uh, Air Force uh, Cyber Warfare, as a general bender, was in Colorado Springs recently at a cyber, Colorado Springs, Colorado, obviously, uh, at a cyber summit. And he was talking about putting out fires in the realm of cyber, uh, but putting out fires all the time make it difficult, and I think this is a quote, it makes it hard to make sufficient changes to meet the challenge overall of our threat in cyber and uh, drawing out a better cyber policy. So what do we need to be doing in terms of moving beyond just the legacy computing challenges that any service or governmental agency faces, uh, moving into a more uh, strategic uh, plan with cyber and actually having uh, a developed plan that we talked about that lays out what happens if Russia, the next time Russia attempts to influence elections. Yeah, and I would just note that it's a very good question, Senator. I would just note that Russia is not just using its cyber tools to interfere in the political processes of our allies, but they're also taking down um, whole systems. I mean, Estonia in 07 um, experienced, you know, half of their capital just going down. I mean, they targeted banks and government institutions just across the board, and they've done that in countless other places. So I think we've got to really bring the NATO alliance into the 21st century. NATO has tried to move ahead vis-a-vis uh, -vis cyber, um, but to be frank, I think a lot of the work to date has focused on securing the, the systems, uh, the operating systems, and not really having a broader discussion, which is difficult for some allies because, frankly, there's a huge disparity between what some allies have and what others lack. Um, and it's difficult for us collectively to have this conversation, but we do need to get to the bottom of it, and that is what was raised earlier. Does a cyber attack justify an Article 5-like response? The NATO Secretary General right now says yes. Frankly, I'm not sure all allies are on board with that. Assuming we get consensus on that, the next question is, what are the array of tools offensively and defensively that we can use to apply to that? But right now, Russia is operating under the assumption that NATO will not respond because it is not comfortable in this space and that we no longer or we still lack an agreement on what the response could look like. Could we message to the Russians what the response would be? Absolutely. We could cite what our, an array of responses could look like, even from an asymmetric perspective, to let them know that just because they come at us through the cyber lens doesn't mean we have to respond that way either, and that we will look at an array of tools. But we haven't messaged that to Moscow to date. And this is really a task for the alliance going forward. Yes, we have to focus on defense budgets. It's absolutely important. It's something I've dedicated, you know, the last two decades of my life to. Um, but at the same time, in addition to defense budgets, we really have to look at these new challenges and getting NATO ready for kind of the 21st century-like challenges that we face. Before turning to Senator Markey, um, General Breedlove, if we had a Secretary of State that we felt was truly committed to walking back Russia's involvement. As we look at legislation, um, 
what are the things we need to take into account? I mean, you can freeze sanctions in place. Um, that's certainly something we're all going to be looking at. But what else do we need to be taking account, assuming we felt that we had a Secretary of State that had the relationship but also the strong desire to walk back uh, Russia's destabilizing efforts? Senator, a little tough for a military person to address, but I've talked about it before, and that is we uh, in the military use a very simple uh, uh, way of describing a nation's power. We use the American coin, the dime, D-I-M-E, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. And I think that as we have approached Russia in the recent past, we've put most of our pressure in the economic sphere, and we have not uh, uh, really use some of the tools we might have in the D or diplomatic, I or informational. In fact, I really don't think we've taken the field in the information battle. Uh, and we need to explore more in the military. And as you know, I recommended defensive uh, or lethal weapons right. for Ukraine. So I believe that there are other tools that we could use. And, and frankly, um, I am not averse to some uh, positive uh, aspects of working with them, but we need to do that again based on conditionality of good uh, behavior. Senator Markey. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the new administration uh, has a responsibility to try to find a way of extending the new START treaty. Uh, and uh, obviously, both countries have bloated nuclear arsenals. Um, President Trump is saying he wouldn't mind a nuclear arms race with Russia, or uh, that Saudi Arabia, South Korea, Japan have nuclear weapons programs. It's a dangerous uh, environment um, that could be created if we just allow for that kind of rhetoric to continue. Um, so my question uh, to you, let me begin with you, Ms. Smith, uh, would be what is the best way that President Trump can uh, move to pursue serious nuclear arms control negotiations uh, with Russia while strengthening the NATO regime uh, and uh, resisting uh, Russian aggression. How can we square that circle? Um, thank you for that, Senator. I would just open by saying, you know, the goal of limiting the modernization plans uh, on both sides um, to try and save money and stabilize the nuclear balance is, is a laudable one, and it's a good idea uh, that I think many of us would support. But I think we have to be very careful how we proceed. And I think the best way to proceed would be kind of the crawl, walk, run. And the crawl, walk, run approach starts with pushing Russia uh, to clean up their act when it comes to the INF Treaty. So they are in violation of the INF Treaty. And I think before we have any conversations with them about something above and beyond New START, something that would take an entirely new shape, we have to focus on what they're in violation of today. So that's point number one. Two, the extent that we want to move forward with a dialogue in the space, again, a laudable goal, we have to basically take the, the trust or distrust and verify approach. I mean, 
Putin has shown in many, many situations, whether it's Syria or all sorts of other environments where you know, you're sitting down with him and he promises you the moon, and a day or two later, it's a very different story in terms of implementation. He has so done this just, in Ukraine and Syria. So, so if I may, so from your perspective then, um, should Trump meet first with NATO before he meets with Putin in order to be reassuring uh, our allies that we are going to be backing them on the INF uh, negotiations and that we're firmly behind uh, that perspective to ensure that Putin understands that there's a united stance uh, that exists on the enforcement uh, of the integrity of the pre-existing nuclear agreements. Is that, would you say that would be a wiser approach for uh, President Trump to take it's to the, be with NATO first? It, 100 percent agreement, that's the right approach. Consult with Europe first, then move to a dialogue with Russia, and do not include sanctions as part of your opening move. Do you agree with that? Um, Senator, that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's kind of what I said in my opening remarks. I do believe that it is important for our new president to meet with our allies um, before he meets with uh, Mr. Putin. And I would like to echo um, there. Uh, I, I share your concerns about other uh, nuclear discussions and things, but my focus as the um, SACUR and the European Command Commander was on the fact that Russia has abrogated the INF and what does that mean to us tactically? Okay, that's uh, uh, very important. Um, well, how can we bring Russia back into compliance with INF without further raising nuclear tensions in Europe? What's the best approach that you would recommend? I think we should share this one. I'll speak a little more militarily, and Julie might speak in a policy manner. Um, as far as the INF, the way we got to the INF was confronting a situation where the Russians were pre presenting uh, a, a tough and ugly problem. And so I do believe that in order to get back to the INF, we may have to take uh, some tough and more deliberate actions. Um, I think we've got an incredible team in the Pentagon now between our new secretary and Joe Dunford. I've worked with both of these gentlemen and for them in my life. I think they will come with a framework for getting to this, but until that time, I still ascribe to the framework that Ash Carter put out there. And I think that, that we just haven't started down the path of what Ash Carter laid out. And so uh, I very much uh, uh, ascribe to his deploy active defense counterforce capabilities and then countervailing strike capabilities as a stepping stone to try to bring pressure on the INF. Okay, so we have the military perspective. Can we get the policy perspective? Oh, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, I, I frankly, I, I have nothing to add. I think that's exactly the right approach. I support uh, what Ash Carter put on the table, and I certainly, as noted earlier, support ensuring that we bring our European allies along in this process. Yeah, because my fear is that if we don't try to find a peaceful uh, but aggressive way of responding, then we just play into the hands of the military and the uh, and uh, a complex in Russia, and to a certain extent, our own military complex here that just want to have a trillion dollars worth of nuclear buildup. It's in their economic interests. It's in their own personal political interests because that makes them more powerful within the society. So, uh, the more that we can use this negotiated resolution, is the more we can avoid squandering, as we did in the 80s. You know. 
trillion, just so much more money than we had to because we weren't willing to kind of get to the table and try to be reasonable but firm in reaching uh, a result that would um, help us on all fronts. And then you can move on with Russia, which that was the key issue that then led to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And you first had to resolve this nuclear conflict. And without that, all the other regional conflicts, all the proxy wars, all were just gonna continue. So that was the central issue. Uh, and I think it still continues to be to a very large extent. The more that we talk about this offensive, defensive technology deployment uh, that just plays into the hands of the most conservative elements um, in their country. So we thank you for your testimony. We thank you. Thank you. Much. Senator Rubio, and just so people, and uh, Ben and I have a something we have to leave for at 1225. I'm going to defer asking any questions. I think Ben is too. There's some other folks that I think want, want a second round. And so in order to accommodate that, we'll go to 1225. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First of all, let me just say, General Breedlove, the Supreme Allied Commander has to be one of the greatest titles I've ever seen in my life. That's one, you must have a very impressive LinkedIn account as people going on there and like the, uh, and your business. Direct link to God, I'm sure. So. Yeah, that's a heck of a title. So, but anyway, I appreciate, we obviously appreciate your service. We thank you both for being here. I want to begin by asking you, I think one of the things that maybe is missing in our analysis of this, and I think you both hinted at it in your opening statements, is how to view all of this. I don't think we understand enough in our debates about Russia how much this is about domestic politics within Russia itself. And so I wanted to share with you my view, which I think others share as well, and, and kind of get your sense of whether I'm on the right track so that we can then analyze any proposed grand bargain with Russia through the lens of that. You know, the, the old deal that Putin seemed to have with his society was that he would create a system where people could make a lot of money, except especially the elites, if he had total political control. And it seems like the new model now is that he is basically trying to generate popular support by creating this perception that he has restored Russia to great global power status on par with that of the United States. Um, and in that process, understanding the tools he has available to do that. He can't do that economically. They're the 12th largest economy in the world, so they're not insignificant. I think it would shock a lot of people to learn that the Russian GDP is equal to that of Italy's. Uh, they also don't have uh, tremendous soft power. And so largely, the, what has given him influence in the world and allowed him to kind of position himself the way he has internally especially, is their willingness to use the assets they do have, conventional military capabilities, the nuclear threat, the use of cyber tools, and to use them in brutal ways often, certainly indiscriminately. And I think and through the lens of that, and through the lens of that goal is how you begin to understand Ukraine, where now they, have, they hold on to Crimea, uh, there's all this talk about NATO and assimilation with the West has vanished. You look at Syria, where their engagement basically shifted the entire dynamic. They are now positioned themselves in the eyes of the Russian people, many in the world, as a regional power broker, which is, in fact, an alternative to the United States. I think that's how you view some of the actions that occurred in our elections, not to mention the opportunity to go back and say to the people in Russia, the American Republic is a fraud, it's a scam, it's corrupt. It's no, no more superior than anything else. It's all hypocritical. You see it often, of course, in the crackdown of what's happening internally in Russia, where people who oppose Vladimir Putin wind up in jail, uh, convicted, as we saw yesterday, on trumped-up charges, or, or poisoned in a hospital bed in intensive care and dead. And, of course, the military buildup for a country that's suffering dramatically, economically, they continue to expand the military capabilities while the rest of the economy, and I guess, it leaves Vladimir Putin at this moment in a position, and maybe this is an exaggeration. I don't think it is. I think he has more power amassed in his hands 
than we have ever seen in Moscow since the death of Stalin in terms of the control that he has over that government and of that society. And so that's why I view, and I want to have your opinion on this, and I think both of you have talked about it, why I think this whole notion of a grand bargain where they're going to help us kill terrorists and fight ISIS in exchange for lifting sanctions is a fantasy. For starters, I think it's borderline immoral because it basically views the Ukraine situation as a bargaining chip to be used as part of a broader deal, in essence, a, an asset that we can give away uh, in exchange for something broader, which I don't think the Ukrainians are going to go for to begin with, and, and I don't think there's support for in Ukraine. But let's talk about fighting against ISIS. That's what Putin says he's doing now. Obviously, why would we have to cut a deal to get him to do what he claims to already be doing? The other risk at that, of course, is the way he claims to fight terrorists is by bombing civilian populations. So if we are in partnership with him fighting ISIS and he kills a bunch of children and bombs a hospital in Aleppo, that's on us too because we are in partnership with them. So imagine the impact that would have on us. And then what about the price we would have to pay? I think, and I just wrote some things I think he would insist on, he would want us to recognize a sphere of influence in the former Soviet republics obviously give up on everything that has to do with Ukraine, get, get NATO off its border, lift the sanctions. And I say all this, why is it a fantasy? Because I don't think there's any internal pressure in Russia on Vladimir Putin to cut a deal. First of all, you can't pressure him because you die. And if you tried to, there's no media. So we're going to try to cut a deal with a guy who thinks he's winning, has no internal pressure, and wants us to give up everything in exchange for him doing what he claims to be doing anyway. So maybe I'm a little harsh, but I think that's a really stupid deal. What do you think? That's a yes or no answer. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, the, the grand bargain mythology is um, really getting a bit laughable at this point. I mean, they, they, let's be clear. You said, uh, you know, Senator, President Putin is claiming that he's combating ISIL. The, uh, he says that, you're right, um, but I think you and I, everyone here, we know they're not combating ISIL. 80% of the strikes that they're undertaking in Syria are in areas where the Islamic State isn't even present. So let's not kid ourselves. And then think about the assets they bring to bear. So they would bring what? They'd bring air? I mean, we don't, we don't need air in Syria or Iraq. So I, I, I truly appreciate what you're trying to say, and I agree with you 100% that the list of things that we could potentially give Russia is huge, top of the list lifting sanctions, and the list of things that we get in return is, is really a big fat zero in many ways uh, in terms of how I look at it. And thank you for mentioning the situation at home. He is leading a declining power. It doesn't feel that way based on the investments that he's made in his military and the way he's acting, but he is at threat at some point of losing control of the situation, and I think because of that, he creates this constant narrative, Russia as victim, he's the only one upholding Russian values. It all borders on the ridiculous. But the situation at home is very important, and that's why I'm so glad you raised it, to mention, to understand his calculus and why he needs to be out in the world to then create this narrative at home that serves his interests in terms of staying in power. Senator, I would just, uh, again, I agree. Thank you for talking about how he's fashioning his view of Russia and Russia's view of him. I would just add one thought. I think also central to the way he does this is creating a common enemy and demonizing the United States as a leader in the West and how we do business is clearly a part of that calculus that you, that you walk through. Um, I would say this just a little different way, and I've been saying it for some time now, and that is, we currently have no trust in this relationship with Russia, as was described 
and as many of you described. There is no trust. You cannot surge trust. You have to earn it over time. If we're to begin to have agreements with Russia, I think we need to start in smaller, more meaningful ways where we can demonstrate that both sides are earnest in their approach and that our uh, results can, are objective and can be viewed by the world, not argued by TASS versus CNN or whatever. And if we build trust over time, then we can find ourselves in a place where possibly we could have these conversations. But I don't think you go from zero to 120 miles an hour. We do this incrementally. We've had two presidents in a row that began hoping to develop trust and were met with distrust. And uh, I think we've learned a lot from that. Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Chairman. And th thank you to the witnesses. This has been a very engaging and I think uh, wide-ranging session. Really appreciate your comments, both of you. And, and uh, Mr. Chairman, also want to uh, add me to the list. I've watched you and, and uh, Senator Cardin talk about Russia and the hacking and the bipartisan effort uh, that, that we're trying to pursue in this committee. I really believe this committee is the right place to do this. I mean, we've all, all of us have talked about this committee being a, a, a island in a way of bipartisanship in this Congress, and, and uh, I think it needs to be a public process rather than just being over in intelligence. And so I would just say it's, it's getting really late and we're losing valuable time, and I hope that we can uh, put an urgency check on that. So thank you uh, for that. Um, Ms. Smith, you, you wrote in August of last year, and I, this is a quote from one of your uh, uh, articles, I think, the theory behind the economic sanctions was that they would eventually bring Putin in line, forced to choose between Russia's economic future uh, and international adventurism. The West assumed that at some point Putin would wisely choose the former. Uh, why did we think that Putin would bow to sanctions when he has support domestically for his narrative that the West is encircling Russia in a threat? And did we think Putin would gain domestically from a decision to give into sanctions pressure? I think we were under the belief at the time that the sanctions would issue a blow to a very weak economy and a situation where they are heavily dependent on their interaction with both Europe and the United States, in many ways more so Europe than the US. And if you look at all the indicators since we impose sanctions, whether it's the value of the ruble or capital flight or, um, you know, I mean, you could look at growth, you can look at living standards. Basically, any, any indicator you take, you still see that the, uh, by every indicator, this is economy that, that's in decline. We are right, though, to also say, despite that very real fact and the fact that it's been paired with a drop in oil prices, that has not stopped his aggression. And I'm the first one to admit that. But I still, th that does not lead me to conclude that we should lift the sanctions or put that option on the table in exchange for, say, help in Syria. I do think in the long run, he is increasingly feeling the pain of these sanctions. I think he genuinely wants to see if he can work with this administration to see if those sanctions might be lifted. And he's taking active, very active measures in Europe to try and divide Europe from within to pull off some of the members uh, that might have some 
you know, hesitation about renewing these when they come up for renewal this summer. Did, in in uh, General Breedlove, did you have anything on that? They, in the, um, uh, the scenario you're talking about in terms of um, uh, Russia and the relationship in Syria and what's going on there and, and the increasing the pressure, do you, do you think that, that in the long term he sees that this could be a real domestic terrorism problem in terms of Russia? The longer he's in Syria, the longer he's doing what he's doing in terms of the killing and the, and, and the war effort and, and asserting Russia in the entire Middle East as a, as a, uh, as a major, major player uh, on that international scene. I, I just, I, I don't feel like I can answer that. I think he appreciates that the mission will have costs over the long run and a very active um, mission that would involve thousands of troops is not something that he wants to sustain over the long term, but I don't feel like I'm the right person to answer the counterterrorism yeah, yeah, piece. Yeah, yeah. General Breedlove, you, you uh, wrote in Foreign Affairs that Russia will continue to improve its military ability to offset the technological advantages currently enjoyed by NATO. What are the most alarming technologies being developed and where does the Russian development of hypersonics fit among these potential threats? So, Senator, I see that both in a low-end context and in a high-end context. This is a learning and adaptive military. They made some pretty bad blunders when they went into Georgia in 08, and they, they took uh, shellacking in some places as they did that. They learned, uh, and when they went into Crimea, they were better. Uh, they were much better. They learned in Crimea, and they got better when they went into the Donbass. In fact, now we see some very sophisticated linking of small forward UAVs to counter battery and, and to artillery fire. In fact, it's, it's pretty well known in the Ukrainian forces. You see or hear a certain kind of drone and within two and a half to four minutes later, you're gonna get grad rockets and other things. So they have gotten much better at this low end piece at stitching together their capability to bring military might to the battlefield. Certainly in the high end, uh, we are not the only nation in the world that are uh, working towards fifth generation fighter stealth technology, incredible jamming capabilities that we see in the fighters, it doesn't surprise that the front end of some of these fighters look an awful lot like the front end of our fighters because the technology has been stolen. And so we see Russia making advances in the low-end technology and the high-end technology. Hypersonic, sir, I, I, uh, I think that has to be a, a classified conversation that you might want to have with the Pentagon. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank Mr. you, Mr. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the courtesy. I appreciate it. Uh, General Breedlove, uh, yeah, a day or two ago we met with uh, several of the Baltic uh, ambassadors to the United States as well as Poland. And in the course of that conversation on many things, one thing that struck me is they say that there is an exercise, a Russian exercise coming up of 100,000 Russian troops in Belarus. Now, we do conduct exercises, I get that, but 100,000 Russian troops in Belarus so much so that I understand Belarus notified, I believe it's NATO, because uh, of the size. Is, is, what is an appropriate
appropriate, if you were advising President Trump, what is an appropriate uh, action response set of circumstances to make sure that a training exercise doesn't end up as anything more than a training exercise? So, Senator, thank you. That's Zapod 17, yeah. Zapod 13, and Zapod means West in Russian. So the, in what this has pointed out is very clear. Zapod 17 uh, is a bit alarming because Zapod 13 was, who do you listen to, 10 to 20,000 troops? Sir, I've heard 200,000. What I do know is that the Russians have ordered 83 times not 83, but 83 times the rail cars that they ordered for Zapod uh, 13. And so the size of this exercise will be demonstratively bigger than Zapod 13. Nations have a right to exercise. Nations do not have a right, I think, to exercise irresponsibly on other borders and in configurations that represent offensive capability. Part of the problem I saw as a SACUR in these SNAP exercises that, that we see. In NATO, our exercises are scheduled, published, size, duration, and objective is all published. The SNAP exercises we see in Russia, I think are a tool that actually we may have used in the past of conditioning an, an enemy so that they don't really see what's happening. And we saw a lot of that conditioning going on in the Western and Southern military district before they went into Crimea and before they went into the Donbass. And so I think the problem with this exercise is size and scope on, directly on the border, a name that orients it west, and uh, the fact that the unpredictability of it makes it very alarming. How do we uh, respond? NATO has debated, do we tit for tat? Do we remain calm? Do we do some portion of increasing alert and others? I, I am not a fan of tit for tat. Uh, I think we should drive our exercise based on what we need to learn and do. But I would be a supporter of what I would call responsible increases in alert and posture should the, should the unthinkable happen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's unthinkable anymore after Crimea and Ukraine, and that's why I worry about this exercise and its magnitude. Maybe a large delegation of members of the Senate in that part of the region of the world at that time might be a good thing, too. Let me ask you both, this is the final question, uh, uh, and it piggybacks a little bit on the question of Senator Rubio or the statement he was praising. You know, I, I found a Time Magazine article from December, which I also cited during Secretary Tillerson's confirmation hearing to be rather illuminating, at least from the perspective of what it was saying. And I'd like to get both of your takes on it about Russia's intentions uh, with the new administration. And I'm going to quote from the article. It says, what the Russians want from Tillerson, however, is bigger than sanctions relief. They want to see a whole new approach to American diplomacy, one that stops putting principles ahead of profits, focuses instead on getting the best political bargain available and treats Russia as an equal on the global stage. For the next four years, we can forget about America as the bearer of values, said Vladimir Milov, a former Russian energy minister who went on to join the opposition. America is going to play the deal game under Trump. And for Putin, that's a very comfortable environment, he told the radio show in Moscow. It's an environment, and this is where I worry, it's an environment where statesmen sit before a map of the world and haggle over the pieces available to them, uh, much like weighing the oil fields of Texas against Russia's reserves in the Arctic. 
Through the canny eyes of a political dealmaker, many of Washington's oldest commitments in Europe and the Middle East could come to be seen in much the same way as a stack of bargaining chips to be traded rather than principles to be upheld. What do you think? Do you think that that's an insightful view of what Russia wants, expects, hopes for? And uh, should, should we be looking at the world? There's one thing to be politic real, the other thing is to, and being pragmatic, the other thing is you know, negotiating away the very essence of our principles and negotiating other countries' territories. If you're, at the, if, you, if you're not at the table, that's not a particularly good deal for you. Can you give me insights as to your perspectives on that? Yeah, the, thank you, Senator. Um, I, I agree with the, with the piece. I think he has multiple goals, Putin, um, in undermining the democratic institutions that served as the bedrock of the transatlantic relationship for 70 years. He would love nothing more than to call into question our commitment to each other, the values that we share, we work to protect and promote, which is his biggest worry. His biggest fear has always been that the West would somehow fuel some sort of revolution inside Russia. And he called out uh, Secretary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the time, uh, for doing exactly that, for planting the seeds of the protests that erupted after he was elected again in 2012. And so he's been very anxious about everything that the West stands for. And so, yes, he wants to undermine our values, our institutions, our unity and resolve. And I think we have to work now and quickly to ensure that he doesn't do that. Senator, if I could, uh, I'm not to be contrary to the piece or, or any others. I would just offer that, in my mind, Russia's intentions haven't changed. It doesn't matter which, uh, from uh, several uh, administrations to now, their intentions really haven't changed. Maybe the tools might change based on the approach of the, of the uh, um, um, leadership in the West. But to, to question the West and certainly question the U.S. leadership of the West to establish Russia as a world power and certainly as the director of operations in their region. All these things I don't think have changed. Um, just the tools might have changed. Thank you. I know Senator Murphy had, uh, i just say one thing, the committee, um, wish to push back really strongly on the Syrian issue when chemical weapons were used. And, and then we tried to empower uh, four years ago an administration to do more. I mean, in many ways, we've sort of fed the beast by not pushing back in ways that uh, I think Congress wished uh, our administration to push back. And I think you're gonna see legislation fairly soon to try to deal with this. And obviously sanctions are one element, but I would just ask you both before turning to Senator Murphy that you're gonna have some questions. We hope that you'll answer those. They'll come in by the close of business Monday. But it seems to me that we're at a point where there's a much broader effort that needs to take place against Russia. That's not just about keeping sanctions that are in place from being lifted, but something far broader than that and I would just ask that you um, send back to us a uh, paper, if you would take time to do so, to talk about those other things that you think would be important relative to us doing so. Senator Murphy. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, just w one uh, final question to let you put a finer point on, I, I think, a um, point you've been making throughout this hearing. 
Um, I've been a big supporter of the European Reassurance Initiative, but I do think it's curious that we have largely viewed European reassurance purely through a military lens. And you've sort of made this comment a couple times over, but I just wanted to let you close the loop on it. I just think it's an interesting question as to you know whether $3.4 billion is best spent simply on military reassurance or whether there are other ways that you can spend a pretty big amounts of money in order to gain longer term security in the region. Let's just pretend that you've spent $3.4 billion on helping countries on Russia's periphery become permanently energy independent, right? Um, I just wanted to allow you to sort of square the circle a little bit and talk to us about, you know, maybe how we should look at European reassurance in the future, and if there are other things beyond just the military support that might get us a little bit more of a long-term benefit. So, Mr. Chairman, I see these as related, and I will be happy to respond to your to your uh, request for those thoughts. I talked a little earlier about this war college model we use of dime, and there is a much broader set of tools which I think could be brought to bear. Uh, Senator, I must say, though, that having served in Europe as a captain in the very early 80s and knowing at that time that there were two corps, seven-plus divisions, multiple brigades, ten fighter wings, et cetera, et cetera, in Europe to handle a problem back then. And now we look at something far smaller than that. I would, I would, I would submit that there's at least $3.4 billion worth of military work to be done there is clearly other work that could be done. You hit it on the head. One of the first tools they use is this energy dependence and our ability to help uh, Europe to be less energy dependent is a, would be a huge step forward and, and may not be so bad for American business either. Yeah, I would just absolutely echo everything that General Breedlove just said. I think you're exactly right. I mean, it, let's be clear, a lot of the allies in Central and Eastern Europe do seek reassurance through military means. They like to see U.S. troops come through. They'd love even more if they stayed uh, permanently. And so they do seek that um, regularly and repeatedly, as you know well. Um, but at the same time, you're right, making an investment in the institutions, in energy independence, in better tools to deal with the strategic communications challenges, with the cyber challenges, with energy coercion challenges. All of that has to be part of our reassurance package as well. It also just starts with traveling more to Europe and being present, not just at the Munich Security Conference, but at lots of other forums and in other delegation trips to take to very sensitive regions that are hurting, that are seeking clarity from the United States right now. We're going to need more engagement with our partners than ever before. Thank you. I just want to, want to thank our witnesses, and um, let's remember the words of Mr. Karamursa when he, he said, stay true to our principles. You know, we talk about entering into some types of arrangements that could be transactional in nature, but if they're outside the scope of our values, uh, it will be, uh, it won't work. So I, I thank uh, our witnesses. I think you've added greatly to our discussions. I, too, want to thank you. It's been an outstanding uh, hearing. I think you've, uh, first of all, heard a lot from members that maybe will help you with that piece of paper that may be coming back, but uh, we certainly have learned a great deal from you. Thank you for selling, sharing your knowledge, your expertise, your commitment to our, our country's national security with us today, and with that, the meeting is adjourned.